0: as we continue our studies of the exodus on sunday evening as we have attempted to encourage our youngsters in this bible bowl effort all of us i'm sure have a more thorough understanding and knowledge of the first part of the book of exodus than we had before exodus has so many lovely and challenging ideas within it ideas that are just as pertinent and just as meaningful for your life and mine in principle As they were for the children of Israel or for the life of Moses, as it was originally delivered in the book of Exodus. It is with that in mind that in some introductory thoughts, I would point out to you how beautiful it is that you and I can come together and worship. We're told in Psalm 29:2, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. It is, in fact, a noble endeavor in which we're engaged, and it is a set of activities that can challenge and charge us for the rest of this week to lift our thoughts above the matters about us so that we'll be better prepared and able to be those faithful and holy servants of the God of heaven. The book of Exodus has often challenged us in that regard. The knowledge of the book of Exodus is a valuable set of knowledge, as is true of any of the books found in the Bible. But we've often found that the Exodus so squarely in many ways points to the Christ, highlighting the character and things that would reach their highest fulfillment in Him. And we shall find even in our continuing study that that will continue to be the case. I might quickly point out just a few of the things that we are attempting to use to help all of us in our study of the Exodus. There are questions in the bulletin, as you may have noted, on Sunday morning. There are those puzzles that we make available as well. As we pray about it and encourage our youngsters, may we each strive to go onward and upward in our understanding of the book of Exodus. Tonight, as we come to chapters 19 and 20, we will pursue the course of action that we have found valuable before, Namely, we'll rehearse the actual historical setting, and then we'll seek to draw some lessons that can be beneficial to each of us. As we do that, first of all, this historical setting to which I referred. If you'd like to turn to chapters 19 and 20 of Exodus in your Bible, I'll just be over the next moment or two highlighting the particular features that we find in those chapters, As we left study two weeks ago, you might recall we had that singing last Sunday afternoon. So two weeks ago, when we concluded chapter 18, we had arrived at the following point. The children of Israel, in leaving Egyptian bondage, they had crossed, of course, the Red Sea, being delivered from their pursuers, the Egyptians. And as they proceeded to wander in the wilderness, to wander, if you please, toward that land of Canaan, guided, of course, by the direction of God, They first ran into some difficulties in regard to food as well as water, and there were even some enemies, the Amalekites, before whom they stood in chapter 16. There was warfare that took place, and Israel was victorious because God was with Moses, her and the the gentleman named Joshua. And all the while, we remember that to this point, despite their moments of weakness and doubt and questionings, they nonetheless have now left Rephidim, and we'll notice in the lesson tonight that they will next come to that place we know as Mount Sinai. And how interesting, how moving, and how compelling will be the events that happen at that location. To bring us to that point, might we notice that as they departed from Rephidim, we rather quickly appreciate that some 50 days elapse between the occurrence of their departure and their arrival here at Mount Sinai. And as we will later appreciate with respect to that time frame, we notice that in the New Testament, too, that element of 50 days reappears. But might we in passing at least notice the significance of that thought? Because during the course of these events, as chapter 19 opens, God expressly reminds these people of what He had done for them. He had borne them on eagles' wings. He had been their protectors and the ones who had enjoyed his favors. He had been the one even already through 50 days that had brought them to where they are. It is to be noted that not only did he say that to them, he also urged them to be ever obedient in faithfulness to what he had delivered. In essence, he reminded them, never usurp yourself over my commandments, but be dutiful and responsible to always follow them in completeness and in absoluteness. We shall learn later it is to this same group of people he will say, do not take anything from what I've said and do not add anything to it. He somewhat prepared them for that discussion even at this point. You might notice that following that, He uttered for them some warnings, some preparations that they needed to make as they got ready for the actual occurrence at Sinai. Cleansing needed to take place. That cleansing involved them getting dressed up, wash yourself and take a bath. And as they made ready for what was to take place, they needed to be prepared as dutiful individuals to respect the moment that was going to take place. Doesn't, in a way, that challenge us to appreciate the moment of worship, for instance, that's before us, and to treat it with the dignity and with the respect that it deserves? To not approach it haphazardly, or to not approach it in such a way that it's just something to take care of for a couple of hours on Sunday, but rather to note that it is a monumental moment of each week. Here, you'll notice the children of Israel, as they drew near Sinai, they had to get ready They needed to be prepared, and that involved, even a few days beforehand, making certain that things were in the order that God wished them to be in. As that time came near, something very strange happened with regard to that mountain. God had expressly challenged them and charged them, Do not come near the mountain. Do not touch it. Do not go up on it. In essence, a boundary was placed around the base of this mountain, and despite the fact that their encampment would be near its base, they were not even as much as to reach forward and touch that mountain. To you and to me, that may seem extreme. What would be the harm in touching the mountain? First, we might, we know, what God said not to. That should be sufficient enough, but the Hebrew writer later will expound upon that by reminding us that was a way in which one could learn about the character of obedience to God and the fact that God was on it. He was going to descend in a form and there speak with Moses. And that made that a type of holy ground, if you please. They were not to touch it. Furthermore, you might notice that something strange happens. After Moses had delivered this challenge and charge to the people... Don't touch it, don't go near it, and certainly don't go upon it. When Moses ascended Sinai, the first thing God says to him is, Go back down. <laughs> Why? Because the people may break through and come upon the mountain. Moses, you see, was initially resistant. But God, we have already charged the people. God said, Go down, Moses. Moses. We shall learn in a moment some valuable lessons based on that activity. But as you notice near the bottom of that slide, there was a fear in the people because the mountain was smoking, quaking. There was lightning and thunder And the people became greatly fearful as they appreciated the very presence of the glory of God on that mountain. And thus they petitioned, Moses, you speak to us, but let not God speak to us. And in that alone, we notice an interesting behavior given that it had been God who had blessed them so much and who had in fact favored them so mightily. Finally, chapter 20, we appreciate closes after God gave them a host of instructions such as what we call the Ten Commandments, it closes with God giving them some direct instructions as to how to build an altar. That may seem an unnecessary thing, shouldn't they? Know how to construct an altar, but God had a very specific matter in mind. And it is to that that we shall turn briefly a little bit later in the lesson this evening. With that very brief overview in place, might we begin to look at some lessons that we can extract from them? Let's begin in the following way. With regard to that instance I mentioned a moment earlier, that God had given instruction, do not touch the mountain, do not look upon it, or in fact certainly do not attempt to climb it. And yet Moses, upon reaching the summit of where God had called him to, God initially said, go back down and charge the people, for they may break through and attempt to come on the mountain we can learn something interesting about all of us in that regard. I entitled it simply this, To Expect Weakness and Resistance. Moses had a rather high disposition and expectation of his people on that occasion. Because they had been challenged and charged not to follow or go through and touch the mountain, Moses expected that they would adhere to that and that they would obey that commandment. But God knew better. God knew the weakness of human flesh, that these people were stubborn, that they had already murmured more than once, and that they would attempt in their stubbornness to break through and to do the very thing that God told them not to do. Might I submit then to us today that we would do well in wisdom to very clearly keep in mind the reality of human weakness, And the reality of the fact that once we give commandment, for instance, to a person who's newly baptized, we may charge that person, encourage them, for instance, to be present at every service, to know the relationship they now enjoy with God, but we should expect that they're going to need continued teaching. They're going to need further encouragement. Thus, we shouldn't just leave them on their own to figure it all out themselves, perhaps, but rather much like God knew that the people were weak. He knew that they were going to do the very thing that He had challenged them not to do. You and I know our own weakness, do we not? I would ask you to note with me some passages. You'll notice, for instance, in Mark sixteen sixteen, as you think about this commandment, on this occasion, God very specifically said to those of that day, you don't touch the mountain." And yet isn't it true that there are people today who despite a plain and simple commandment will do the very thing that God said not to do or fail to do the thing He said to do. There Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. So one of the first things we learn is that men can just directly ignore the commands God has made. I don't think any of us would do that purposefully but we should ever be aware, however, of the reality of the weakness of human flesh. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 26, The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That text found in Matthew 26, verses 39 to 42, reminds us that on that occasion, Peter, James, and John had come close enough by virtue of the Lord's commandment that they had been near when he prayed so earnestly in Gethsemane But Jesus came back to find him asleep. Not once, not twice, but three times. It was on that occasion that Jesus said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We need to ever be aware that old flesh can be weak. And in that weakness, we can in fact find ourselves making, in principle, the same kind of mistakes the children of Israel made. Despite the fact they'd been commanded... They were going to do what they wanted, despite the fact they knew God said not to touch that mountain. They were God knew they were going to do it anyway. What about your life and mine? Do we overestimate ourselves too much? When really we should appreciate the possibility of our weakness—that we can become entrapped again in the corruptions and pollutions of this world. Second Peter two verse twenty, and in that we can certainly become overcome therein. The children of Israel, you see, God knew their weakness. And he charged Moses, go back down the mountain. They're going to do the very thing that you told them not to and that I told you to tell them that they shouldn't do. It is in that regard, as I mentioned earlier, we each are in constant, continual need for encouragement and exhortation. There isn't one of us that falls outside the need for that reality might I point you to these two passages. In Matthew twenty-eight twenty, very last verse in the gospel according to Matthew, Jesus on that occasion, if we may begin in verse 18, since the complete thought is inexpressed, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Isn't it significant that the Lord said, teach them? That will lead to obedience and baptism. But then He said, teach them again. Continue to teach. So this would be teaching those who are already Christians so that they might appreciate their own weakness and hopefully not fall into the error like these children of Israel were shortly, it would seem, ready to do. In Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 23, we remember there one of the strongest New Testament exhortations that you and I are to consider one another to love and provoke one another to love and to good works. That involves one thing, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. But in verse 23, it also involved an appreciation of one another and exhorting one another so much the more as you see that day approaching. Thus, may you and I not overestimate ourselves. There are temptations each of us face. You and I, if we allow ourselves to slip away from Christ, that will make us weak and we will be ready to succumb to the very temptations that Satan puts before us. May we be wiser than the children of Israel in that regard. And may we in strength appreciate that we must remain near to the Master. And in remaining near to Him, we will, of course be in a position to where, as Moses was overestimating them, our estimation will then be real, not based on ourselves, but the one who is with us. But that's not the only lesson that we may glean from these verses. Consider another with me, if you would. In the opening part of chapter 20, perhaps for some the most familiar part of the entirety of the book of Exodus, that set of verses that you and I call the Ten Commandments. In Hebrew, it literally are the ten words, so significant, so vital, they occupied a very special place in the mindset of the ancient Hebrews. And as you and I well know, they occupy a very vital place in the mindset of many still today. But what might you and I say about these Ten Commandments? I would ask you to notice a few of these things with me. Despite the fact that they occupied such a seemingly central role, notice they were the first things that God uttered to Moses to be shared with the children of Israel. And you and I noticed there were ten especial matters listed. Maybe you and I can even list many of them in order and properly. But as you give some thought to what they involve, they fall naturally into two sections You notice that there is an opening or first section that seems to relate directly to their relationship to God. You must have no gods before me. You must make no graven images of any variety of things on earth, in heaven, or beneath the earth. Commandment three do not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Commandment four remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So in those four commandments, they each have directly involved a spiritual matter between themselves and God. But beginning with commandment five, honoring father and mother, you'll notice that things seem to turn to the relationships between human beings. Honor your parents, don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't bear false witness, and don't covet. you notice those two particular divisions, though, are such that they each are vitally important because they're all an important part of life here on earth. Isn't it amazing that as significant as these Ten Commandments seem, when Jesus was asked what was the greatest commandment in Matthew twenty-two thirty-six, he did not quote any of these. He quoted from the book of Leviticus. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. And the second commandment too he developed from a different Old Testament book, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. When the Lord thus was asked about these, the greatest of the commandments, he didn't choose any of these ten. It ain't amazing that there was one he quoted that superintended all of them. It was one that rested higher in greatness because all of these, in essence, followed from that one. But not only that commandment. How should you and I look upon these Ten Commandments today? There are those, in fact, you perhaps have spoken to some who are adamant about the keeping, literally and absolutely, of the Ten Commandments still today. There are those who proclaim that that's what should be done, that that is the entirety of the will of God, and that it is the one and only means whereby we could stand pleasingly before Him today. However, might we not forget that these were a part verbatim of that old law of Moses, that mosaic economy, if you will, and that furthermore, that law the Lord expressly said was to be thoroughly and completely fulfilled. Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18. He, in fact, said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy but to fulfill. And he went on to say, I say unto you, Not one jot or tittle shall pass from the law till all be fulfilled. But isn't that interesting that later we read in Luke 24, verse 44, that everything, Jesus said, That was prophesied of me hath fulfillment. So, those portions and pieces had been fulfilled that referred and referenced Him. And later, wasn't it true that Paul, the peerless apostle, in Ephesians 2, verses 13 to 18, and in Colossians 2, verses 11 to 16, directly said, The law has been taken out of the way, nailed to the cross. The enmity that was between us and God has been removed. And Paul even listed the commandments. And in a Colossian letter, he expressly said upon nailing it to his cross, he even listed a few of the features, such as the keeping of Sabbaths, which was the fourth of those ten commandments. Paul said that has been taken out of the way. It is true, thus, that just as surely as the entirety of the old law has thus been taken out of us, it includes these ten commandments. But in that regard, might we be quick to say some of those Ten Commandments we do find iterated in the New Testament. In fact, some of the teaching of Jesus made note again, and thus they also are a part of the New Testament record. In Romans 13.9, Paul even listed many of those Ten Commandments and thus placed them under the umbrella of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the New Testament era. And so, when it says, Thou shalt not kill, or Thou shalt not commit adultery, or Thou shalt not steal, we have New Testament references that also make those same demands of us today. You'll notice that as one lists them, of those ten, it is the fourth one that is to be found nowhere in the New Testament. Because, of course, there is no Sabbath in this era, there is the first day of the week that is special day on which our Savior rose from the dead, Matthew 28, 6. And that day in which we find the New Testament Christians gathering to offer worship unto God and doing so as they involve themselves in those five given acts of authorized worship. And so you'll notice that we perhaps should be a bit cautious in the way we think about the Ten Commandments. It would not be entirely proper just to encourage the Ten Commandments on someone today. However, as we give thought to what we mean maybe by those Ten Commandments, we would mean that those parts that do find expression in the New Testament. But that's not all of the Ten. And might we also notice in passing that in terms of those commandments that God gave ancient to Israel, there were far more than ten of them. It's just that these ten are the first things that he said. Our youngsters, as they're studying in Exodus, and you and I who have looked at some of the puzzles and things, in chapters 21, 22, 23, and 24, we find a whole host of various commands that God delivered. You'll notice that there were then far, far more than just ten commandments. I'm told that those who have kept up with the matter of Judaism... As they have searched with scrutiny through the first five books of the Old Testament and have counted the commands that God expressly gave to the ancient Hebrews, not only was it far more than 10, it numbers 621. A total of 621 commands, not just 10. Thus, as we give some thought to that, you'll notice that brings us to our third lesson of the evening which does draw expressly from the first of those Ten Commandments. The first and foremost matter that God delivered to them was this, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. He spoke those words to a group of people who had not long before come out of Egyptian bondage. And there they had witnessed a pantheon of Egyptian gods, dozens and dozens of them. And remember that they had been in that bondage for well over 200 years. They had been in Egypt a total. In fact, they had left the nature of Abraham in leaving that city of Haran and the promise that he had received. That had taken place 430 years earlier. This people had thus been in a very distinct and interesting set of places. They had seen many things, no doubt. They had watched people worship the sun, the mountains the sky in various and sundry ways, first and foremost, they needed to know, there are no gods but me. You are to have no gods before me. If only that one lesson they would have learned, and learned it well. Think of all the problems later in the Old Testament from which they would not have had to endure. May we give some thought this evening to the fact we need to learn that lesson sometimes too. We need to be reminded, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. In fact, that significance may be highlighted in some of the ways we can see on this next slide. God was to occupy the first and foremost position in the life of ancient Israel, not only collectively, but each person individually. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. We read that in Deuteronomy. We also notice... some of these other concepts that challenge us today. As Paul wrote the Colossian brethren in Colossians 3, beginning in verse 1, some of the verses to be found there challenge us just as much as this first of the Ten Commandments must have challenged them. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Where are your affections in mine? that asks us, where are your priorities in mind? Are they centered, focused, completely on things that are here? For if so, we are breaking in principle the same thought that's expressed in the first of the Ten Commandments. Later in that same chapter, Colossians 3, Paul highlights that thought because in verse 5 he says, Mortify various and sundry activities. Mortify means put to death. Your life should not exhibit these. And he goes on to list some of them, and one of them he mentions is covetousness. Remember the tenth commandment was, thou shalt not covet. And he says, covetousness is one and the same with idolatry. Isn't it amazing? You and I can be guilty of idolatry if we are covetous. If we're given to being a person who covets things. Isn't that a sobering reflection? So you notice that we need to be mindful of the fact when we covet something, be it an inanimate object, be it an individual, be it anything that is on this earth, we are breaking in principle the thought of Colossians 3 verses 1 to 3 in which our first and foremost principles of of affections and thoughts must be directed to the God of heaven. That means that the things of your life and mine must be maintained in a proper perspective. This is always an ongoing challenge for each and every one of us. A challenge daily, that whether we're at school, at work, enjoying a time of recreation, things relating to entertainment, all of them have their proper place, but they must be maintained in that proper regard of perspective. Can a Christian have fun? Those in the New Testament were encouraged to be joyful, How often did Paul admonish those to whom he wrote, Be joyful, and to do so with an expression of thanksgiving to God and an understanding that the one who has blessed you is one who would allow you to enjoy that joyfulness. The writer of Ecclesiastes encouraged it. It's certainly okay to be joyful, to have fun, but we mustn't let fun be the ruling, controlling matter of our life entertainment and recreation. Those certainly have their position in place. Wasn't it true that Paul made reference to such in First Corinthians 9, verses 23 to 27? When even the running of a race is therein mentioned, Paul endorsed that as a lesson for you and me as we run the Christian race, to run so that we can receive the reward. You'll notice that in First Timothy 4, 8, it is still true that bodily exercise profits little, But God is profitable unto all things. Thus, as we give thought to taking care of the body, that's a fine thing, but we shouldn't make that our God, so that it is the highest of our priorities, for example. And isn't it true in light of some of those other things that I've mentioned? To live for a paycheck. There are some for whom the monetary aspect of life means everything to them. They are bereft of any comfort without it. They have erred. That paycheck is merely a blessing, and you and I should be good stewards of it, of course. But it's nothing more than that, and should be sufficiently viewed in that way. You'll notice in that listing I've also included, there are those who perhaps would wonder about the mention of religion in that list. That may seem unusual. I list that for the following reason. There are many in our world who have reached the point of lifting high the thought of religion but not spirituality. They do not understand the character of religion and what religion is as set forth in the New Testament, they misconstrue the nature of the Holy Spirit, for example. And they think that nearness to God comes in a different way than what the Scriptures teach. They are lifting high something other than the character of what God has revealed Himself to be. And in that regard, they again have erred. But you'll also notice, for some it is prestige, fame, and popularity. Without that, they feel lost. They want their name to be that which everyone knows. And without that, they feel empty, they feel useless, they feel vain. We should be cautious, exceedingly cautious of having a strong desire to have our name out there, other than the fact that the name Christian might be associated with us. You and I are just humble servants and stewards. We walk on God's footstool for a few years, and then we pass away from it. Wasn't it David who said, I must go the way of all the earth in First Kings 2 verse 2. And thus, when we long for prestige amongst men, may we seriously think about Proverbs 22.1. A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches, and loving favor more than silver and gold. If it is your name and mine that's mentioned in the halls of individuals' minds and places, may they associate the goodness of Christianity with it. That individual is an example of a Christian. He or she is a saint of God. He or she has given his or her life to faithful obedience to exactly and explicitly what the Scriptures have taught. That would be a noble epitaph indeed. Isn't it true in light of all of that? Perhaps we can come near the close of that by saying, by the way that you and I live, life will involve many of these things, perhaps all of them. But we must be very cautious to keep them in their proper perspective. Wasn't Paul a noble example of that? He had a name. And it's a name recognized far and wide as a persecutor of the church and for many, many lengths of time. He had to live with that thought and to win brethren to the very message that he once had sought to condemn. You see, he wanted not just his name. For 1 Corinthians 1, verses 12 and 13, he didn't want his name proclaimed. He thanked God he had baptized so few of them. He thanked God, in fact, that he had not been the principal one in regard to aiding many of them to obey the gospel. He was thankful they'd obeyed the gospel, but he didn't want his name associated with the the enterprise. Tonight, as we come near the close of this lesson, may we appreciate the fact that what the Bible reveals to us is the compass for our lives. And these other matters should be puzzle pieces within it, but the overall theme should be Christ Jesus and Him crucified. In summary... We have learned tonight as we've looked at the children of Israel's arrival at Sinai and God's deliverance to them of these commandments that we've learned to appreciate. And in the list of those commandments, some things that we've learned about applying them today, but not because they're in the Old Testament, but because we find them in the New. We've also learned that we shouldn't overestimate our own selves because we can exhibit weakness. And finally, that last lesson... We've learned that just as surely as there are no other gods before God in the Old Testament, there mustn't be any today. Is God the God of your life? Or have you really, if you're honest with yourself, begun to follow other things? Is God riding in the back seat of your life? Or is He the one driving the automobile? If He isn't the driver, may I ask, think urgently and seriously about the position you're in tonight. Jesus, again, we're told in the matters of spirituality, the New Testament scriptures, the gospel, that must occupy the highest position of fidelity in your life. Are you faithful to it? Have you been faithful to it? If you can't say that, perhaps you need to come forward tonight in a public way and ask for prayers for strength and for forgiveness from brethren who could pray for your forgiveness in regard to those things you've done and that you would be stronger in the days ahead. If you've never become a Christian as of to this point, you in fact are not yet on the side in which many of these things can be applied. Right now there must be another God in your life, for you have not to this point rendered obedience to the God of heaven. Set aside whatever those other gods may be, for they aren't true gods, they won't lead you to heaven. And they, in fact, will lead to a troublesome life from here until the time of your death. If we could help you tonight to become a Christian in regard to the matter of your belief in Jesus, the repentance of your sins, the confession of the name of Jesus as a Son of God, and your faithful baptism for remission of sins, we could help you with that. If you have done that but need prayers of strength and encouragement, we also would pray with you and for you. If any of these things are the needs of your life in a public way tonight, why not come forward? Even now as together we stand and while we sing.